Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing me back safely. Thank you, Father, for holding all that are here in your arms and in your hands every Sunday. Preparing our hearts and giving us your word and giving us opportunity to praise your name. Letting us serve in our gifts that you've given us. You're the Alpha and Omega, Father. You've, through your Son, you have brought all things together and tied them together in your power. And, and we are a small part of that. But nonetheless, Father, you visit upon us blessing after blessing as if we were all important. Granting us, Father, the knowledge of yourself through your word. Granting us, Father, the joy of serving Most of all, Father, granting us forgiveness of our sin by the blood of Christ, by our faith in his work, and by no other means. I thank you, Lord, that through the years you preserved Oak Hill Bible Church, putting us here for good purpose, to serve you in this part of Austin, to serve each other first, and then outwardly to serve the city, Father. I pray that what we are learning along this path is inspiring us to be greater servants and to be more dedicated in the task you've given us. I pray our witness is growing, not only in our words, but in our actions. I pray that our courage is growing and our diligence and our determination, Lord. And I pray our sense of urgency has been heightened as we consider resurrection in this chapter, Father, and we consider the way and the day in which that may come and and the judgment that would follow, that our mind has been taken over by concerns of how you will judge us and how you view our service so that we would have greater desire to please you. We pray for these outcomes, Lord, for that is why we study your word, not to be merely hearers, but so that we may be doers as well. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, it is time, as I just mentioned in our prayer, it's time for us to wrap up the teaching that Paul's doing on the topic of resurrection in chapter 15. This is the chapter Paul set out to write in response to one of those questions from Chloe's delegation as we've studied throughout the letter, the question that came to him concerning whether resurrection was truly possible or not. And in what he's done so far through the first half of this chapter, as we've studied, Paul has first rebuked those in Corinth who would have suggested that resurrection isn't possible. He explained at the beginning of this chapter that the resurrection is all important to the essence of the gospel. He reminded them of Christ's own resurrection. He explained the centrality of resurrection to Jesus's mission of reversing Adam's sin in the garden. And he's shown the church that their own practices of cherished Christian rituals like baptism, those things point to the reality of resurrection. So at this point in the letter, all that's left for Paul to do is to explain to the church the manner of our coming resurrection. How it will happen. What will it be like? Because at the heart of the church's doubts concerning resurrection was a lack of appreciation for how the Lord could accomplish something so miraculous. That's, I think, the essence of their doubts in resurrection. How could it be possible for a dead body that's been decomposing in the grave, maybe for centuries, to be reconstituted into a living vessel? It seemed nonsensical to them. The impossibility of it all was probably the main reason why the church succumbed to false teaching that told them resurrection was not a reality. So let's see how Paul addresses those doubts as he explains the manner of resurrection. We do that beginning in verse 35 today. Paul asking essentially the question I just raised. He says in verse 35, but someone would say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. 
That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wishes. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. Now, in verse 35, Paul refers to the question I started in my introduction with. He refers to a person, someone in the church in Corinth who might have been asking, how is it possible that the dead could be raised? Tell me, how is this going to happen? What kind of body can come back from what has been put in the grave? Now, it's important to understand the tone of this question as Paul represents it, as it was likely being asked in Corinth. The tone of the question was one of someone who did not believe in resurrection. It was a sarcastic tone. So that if you came to that person and you said there is the truth of resurrection, their response was, oh, yeah, well, tell me how that's possible. How could it even be possible for God to raise a dead body? Imagine the condition of such a body. Tell me what kind of body would come out of the ground looking the way it does when it's in the grave. The question itself was intended to mock the very idea of resurrection. Now, the question points to this decay process of dead bodies. It points to the destructive nature of of death itself in order to discredit the idea of resurrection. I mean, they're asking things like, how can a body that's decomposed into dust ever be living again in a way that's useful? Or what if that body had been totally burned up in a fire? How can that body be resurrected? Or what if it had been eaten by wild animals? How can that body be recomposed into life again? I mean, the, the physical elements of the body have been consumed or distributed and moved around the world. They've been in a molecular sense. What was once a body is now just atoms and molecules mixed into the dirt and around the world. So how could that ever become a body again? Paul repeats the question here, but he does so in order to answer that objection. Notice his personal response here begins with a strong statement. He calls anyone who would harbor such thinking a fool, which to us doesn't sound like a very strong word, but that is a very strong rebuke in the culture in Paul's day. Biblically speaking, it's a very strong insult. Elsewhere in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel, we hear Jesus addressing someone who would dare call another person such a thing. Matthew 5.22, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, the context of what Paul says in context of chapter 15 makes clear that Paul was not sinning in the way Jesus is speaking When he issues this strong rebuke, when he calls such people fools, the meaning of the word fool in scripture literally is this, a person who discounts or excludes the power of God. Someone who discounts or excludes the power of God is called a fool in scripture. Psalms gives us that definition clearly in Psalms chapter 53, verse one. It says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice There is no one who does good. So in Matthew 522, Jesus gives an example of someone who would use this strong term of fool, but doing so in a hateful manner in order to slander someone, to slander a brother to that person. Jesus says you're committing a sin and all sin justifies hell in the end if it's not covered. 
But here, Paul's using the term in a different way. In fact, he's using it in the technically correct sense. He is describing the person's sinful mindset when they say that resurrection is false. They are discounting, they are ignoring the power of God in doing such a thing. They are saying that because they, in their human mind and in their understanding of natural things, because they can't see any way to create a new body from what has been, then, therefore, it's impossible. But if I'm going to come to that conclusion, the only way I get there is if I discount, if I ignore the power of God to do whatever God would do. And so, in that sense, technically, I am a fool by the definition in Scripture. So Paul here isn't uttering a hateful insult. He's correctly labeling the mistake of those who deny resurrection. Then in the second half of verse 36, Paul moves into answering the question that this fool has raised by reminding them of God's power to do this very thing every day. That, in other words, what they're saying God can't do regarding our bodies, God is at work doing around them every day. Paul draws this comparison between the physical resurrection of our human body and the natural process of seeds turning into plants. And it's tempting to look at what Paul does here in calling this example metaphoric. It's tempting to say he's just using a, a metaphor. He's comparing resurrection to seeds. But I think this example is more than simply metaphor. It transcends mere illustration. Paul's pointing out here the miraculous power of God to turn one physical form into another physical form that bears no resemblance to the original. Something that's evident every day in the cycle of life on earth. Looking at his example, he says, God designed the reproduction of plants to depend on an implanting of one article, one physical object, the seed, into the earth. And in that sense, it's buried, Paul says. And then he says, that thing which we bury bears no resemblance physically to the plant which emerges from it at some later time. In fact, you cannot predict the appearance of a plant by looking at its seeds. If you were not a farmer, if you didn't have a lot of experience with farming, and I laid out a dozen different seed types here in front of you, I could defy you to tell me what plant comes from which of those seeds. You might recognize corn, you might recognize wheat, of course, but there's a plenty I could throw out here that you'd have no idea what comes from that seed. That's because they're so different. I mean, it goes without saying, right? We take this for granted. God has chosen to assign a certain body, if you will, a certain physical appearance to each seed as he wishes. And in both cases, plant and seed, they are so different, they are so unconnected in their type, it proves that God is capable of making these kinds of dramatic transformations every day while we give no thought to it. And yet the critics of resurrection in Paul's day overlooked this daily miraculous transformation, even as they claimed that God can't grant us new bodies if our old one is in too bad a condition. Furthermore, once the new plant arrives on the scene, the seed that produced it is gone. You can't go find it again. I dare you to dig up an oak tree and find the acorn that started it. It's gone. It's not as though the old seed remains there. That seed literally transformed into a plant. And that new plant body, as I said, bears no resemblance to the original seed, which means that the material for that plant, that tree, came from beyond the seed itself. True? The seed might have been this big and the tree is 25 or 30 feet tall. Clearly, there's more material in the plant 
than there was in the seed, which means that though the seed was the beginning of it, the seed is not the essence of it. It's not the entirety of it, that there was more material required than merely what began it. So while the seed is essential, it's not sufficient for the new plant to arrive. All of these elements in Paul's example have a parallel application when we move to the conversation of resurrection, something that must be buried to create something new that is wholly different and bears no resemblance and depends on a structure and on a source of material that is more than what was there in the beginning. All of these things have parallels into resurrection. And Paul's now going to begin to make some of those parallels for us. He broadens his example in the next passage, moving away from just seeds and plants to looking at the entirety of God's creative power. Look what he says in verses 39 through 41. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but rather there is one flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another flesh of birds and another of fish. Well, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for stars differ from star in glory. So Paul reminds us that the Lord's palette for creating physical bodies is limitless. And just the world around us shows us how varied it is. Paul uses this word glory. Uh, I, I think you need to see that in its context as a general statement, meaning the appearance of something, not in spiritual terms, glory, but in physical terms, a sort of glory, a sort of appearance. And he talks in terms of bodies as a general word for for these objects. So the bodies of men are different than the bodies of animals. That's obvious to anyone who looks at the two, right? The nature of an insect is so different than the nature of a mammal in terms of the animal world and us different from both of them. Fish different from birds. The point is not that the raw materials are different. If I break them down to their chemical structure, eventually I get to the, the elements of the periodic table and the basic molecules of life. We all understand that. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is that when God took those basic building blocks and began to assemble things with them, he chose to make radically different objects with them, radically different appearances, glories, as Paul says. And if you go beyond just the boundaries of earth and you look into the universe, it's even more apparent how different bodies of the universe are, the celestial bodies of the of the universe. What's his point in all this? His point is, if you can take for granted the variety of construction that God has done in the natural world around us and see that God is capable of taking the same building blocks and creating vastly different things with those building blocks, then how is it that we draw lines around God's power and we say, but he can't take those elements and create a new body for us once our old body is dead? It's bizarrely nonsensical. It makes no rational Sense, and that's Paul's essential argument. So when the time comes for the Lord to assign each of us the new resurrected body that we all receive, God won't be constrained by the condition of our body. He won't be constrained by the appearance of our first body. However, we look today puts no constraint on God for how he may choose to make us look in the future. And I don't know about you, but I'm really happy about the fact that he's not constrained by my current appearance when it comes time to make the new one. I'm just, I'm assuming I go up from here. Work with me on that assumption, would you please? We're all going to look a little better, hopefully. I don't think we're going to be radically different. If he created Adam and woman in the garden at the beginning in a certain form, which we now share today largely, then it stands to reason that he was 
pretty sure about what he wanted men and women to look like from the beginning. And so I find it hard to believe that he's going to radically alter our appearances. I don't think we're going to have four arms and six legs. I mean, that goes beyond speculation into just nonsense, right? But will I be taller? Will I be more attractive? In my book, yes. I'm assuming we'll still find our form to be recognizable and familiar. But beyond that, there's no constraints on God for how he chooses to form us. And Paul says God will construct a body suitable for eternal life in a heavenly realm. And if that's true, we draw another parallel from that seed example to learn a little more about what our new body will be like. Just as that seed gave itself up to create something new, our old body will go into the grave and and be done away with to make room for the new. But in the same way that that seed needed new material to eventually create what came from it, because the seed itself was not sufficient, didn't have enough material inside itself to create the new. It needed oxygen, it needed sunlight, it needed nutrients from the ground. Those things work together to then arrive at a much larger object, very different object, right? Similarly, God cannot take the material from this earth and use it to construct your new bodies when the day of the resurrection comes. He must work with new material to create a new body. And the reason is because our earth and all that's in it shares the same curse that our body does today. It has been cursed in the garden because of sin. The elements of this world are due to be destroyed, our bodies along with it, because of sin. So it cannot be that on the day of the resurrection, God goes back to the earth the earth of Adam, and uses it to once again fashion new bodies for us. For if he does that, he begins in the same place that we began, that is, of the earth. Paul says clearly, while our first body is earthy, our new body is heavenly, meaning it has a new source as well as a new form. We must be created all new in the likeness of Christ if we are to live eternally with Christ. Therefore, we will enter new bodies By the power of God, rather than by a physical birth. Think about it. How did you get your first body? Our first body was made of the material of our parents' body. The physical material of our parents began our birth and was nourished through what our mother ate and what was then given to us through her biology. That's that's the material of our making. God in control of it all, yes, of course. But the physical source was our parents' body. And our new body is to be made in the likeness not of Adam and not of our parents, but of Christ. Just as our new spirit by faith has already been born again in the likeness of Christ. So as you and I sit here today, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have come to faith in his death and resurrection, if you know him as Lord, then you have a new spirit by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. You have been born again in spirit, but you still have your old body. So do I. So we're sort of halfway where we're going to go. We're new in spirit, old in body. But the resurrection is the day when that second piece comes into place. We get our new body. Just as our new spirit is birthed of Christ, not of Adam, also must our new body be sourced in Christ, not in the earth, not in Adam. We need to have a new body that is eternally suited for living in a heavenly realm in a sinless capacity. So it must have a source, an eternal source, not an earthly one, something beyond the cursed creation. And it will also have a new construction. Paul gives us that next in verse 42 through 49. He says, so also is the resurrection of death. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. 
It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. And as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Paul's speaking here of the physical nature of our construction, not just of our spirit, but of our body. This is a conversation about the body. So in our new existence, Paul says, notice, we are, or we will be imperishable. The Greek word for perishable, it means to be corrupt or to be killed. But it carries the idea of corruption is the cause to be corrupt. So our first body today is constructed from material that was already corrupt before we came into the world. We came into the world made of a material that was corrupt in its inception, so it passed that on to us. We come from that material we share in its likeness. How far do you trace that back? All the way to Adam. Even woman herself was made of Adam. So that we all construct from a source that started corrupt or became corrupt and led the rest of us into corruption. We came into the world as damaged goods, spiritually and physically. But the new body, Paul says, will find its source, Paul says, in Christ. That is, he will construct for us a new perfect body, one that Paul says is imperishable. Now think about that for just a moment. This is a pretty striking statement from Paul. Imperishable in the Greek means incorruptible. Doesn't just mean you won't die. Yes, that's true. But go back a step. Why will it not die? Because it will never be corrupted. It cannot be corrupted. We will be held in a state of sinlessness by the power of Christ. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? We won't be asked to be sinless. It's not as though we can lose our card to club heaven if somewhere in the future we decide to be sinful. No, we will be constructed both spiritually and now, as he says here, physically from a source that will hold us in this imperishable, incorruptible nature. That's a remarkable thing. That's a glory to God. And that is a blessing to us. Paul reiterates the example of the seed here to emphasize that contrast of old and new. He says the first body is sown. You know, that's the word for planting a seed in the ground. But think of it as the word bury. He says the first body is buried But it's buried in dishonor, the dishonor of our present sinful condition. Our present bodies are corrupt and our physical death is proof of that. So we are then planted, Paul says, but we go through that process of death so that we can arrive at a time of glory. We come back out of the ground, so to speak, resurrected into a new imperishable body of glory. So you can see the death process for believers as a process of bringing new life and glory from what was previously dishonorable And do death. And then likewise, down the row of comparisons, he says the seed was small. I love the example in the Gospels about mustard seeds. They're very small seed. They make a fairly large plant, not a giant plant, but, you know, they can maybe be 12 or 15 feet high at the most in the Middle East. But comparatively, tiny seed, big plant. 
Beautiful example of how the church will grow from a small seed of faith. But in this case, looking at the resurrection, it's another example of just how much power there is in our new body relative to the weakness of our original. Small, big. That's the comparison. We can also see that our original body was natural, living according to the desires of our flesh, with the new one will be spiritual, which means we live to serve and please Christ. Our thoughts, our desires, all of that will be according to his nature, not according to our old nature anymore. So Paul says, friends, if you have lived at all, if you have ever experienced an earthly life, and this is true, of course, regardless of whether you are a Christian or not, if you have lived on earth, then you can also be assured you will have an eternal body. You will have an eternal existence. That's what he says. If we had the natural, then we will have the eternal. Now, for those of us who know Christ is Lord, our dwelling place will be in his presence in the kingdom and then later in the new heavens and new earth. On the other hand, if we do not know him as Lord, we yet still see this new body come. We yet still have a resurrection day. That's true for every human being, according to Scripture. The difference is, where will we live in eternity? The Bible says the unbeliever, with their sin not having been covered by Christ, will live in eternal separation from the Father in a place called the lake of fire. So these things, Paul says, are all coming, they are all certain, and we can see the pattern in everyday life through seeds. We can know that this is not only the plan of God, but it's within the power of God to do these things. We were made of dirt. We will once be made of heavenly things. And now Paul reveals one of the most powerful mysteries of the New Testament, the manner of our resurrection. Simply put, how is this going to happen? Not is it possible, not is God capable, but knowing he is capable and knowing it is going to happen, the question then becomes, well, then how? Explain, Paul, the moment of this transformation. How will we see it happen? And Paul begins to explain that now. Verses 50 through 53, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Paul repeats at the beginning of this passage that the bodies of this world, of this natural world, are simply unable to enter into the heavenly realm. They're barred at the door. You and I, having been saved by grace, stand here today justified by our faith. There's no question that we will be offered entry into heaven based on the promises that Christ extends to those who believe in him. But at the same time, as we sit here today, we still have a body, a physical container that is sinful. And therefore, as a result, we are not eligible yet in this present condition To enter into the presence of God. There's no doubt we will be there with him. But the question becomes, how will he make us able to enter his presence without receiving his wrath for sin? The only answer is he's got to do away with his body before we are allowed entrance. And that's what Paul says. Flesh and blood, speaking of our natural bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom. We cannot be a part of it. We cannot enter into it. Because he says the perishable, the mortal body, cannot inherit A time and place that is limited to the imperishable existence, to the sinless, glorified existence. So now we get to the point. 
How am I going to get to that place, Paul? How am I going to move from where I sit today into that way I need to be so that I can enter into heaven as I've been promised? In verse 51, Paul begins to explain that manner of resurrection, the manner of that replacement. And he says he does so by unveiling a mystery to the church. The word mystery in the New Testament has a very specific meaning. The word does not mean something that's mysterious or confounding or beyond our appreciation or unexplainable. That's not what the word means when it's used in this way. It means a truth concerning God's plan which was hidden from our understanding until some appointed time when it is revealed. A mystery is a truth that God intends to reveal, but for a period of time it is not revealed, it is unknown, and then a time comes when it is to be revealed. And Paul has the honor of all of the New Testament authors. He had the honor of revealing the eight mysteries of the New Testament. There are eight. This is one of the eight. We don't have time to go through the whole list. We can perhaps do that some other time. But there were eight things that were not known to Old Testament saints, that were not revealed in the Old Testament, but were truths God was planning to reveal in the timing that he appointed after his son's first arrival. And he did so through the writers of the New Testament. Paul particularly revealed eight mysteries in the New Testament. And he often names them this way. He often says, I tell you a mystery. Or I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery. He'll use that word on several occasions. Here's one of them. Here we see him revealing one of those eight. And Paul begins by saying, first, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. That's often a phrase posted on church nursery walls, I've found. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In this context, sleep is a euphemism for death. And it's pretty easy to see by the context. Remember, he's been talking about resurrection. He's been talking about bodies going into the ground and new bodies getting Raised and so on. This is a context of death. We use the same kind of euphemistic terminology for death today, right? We want to be polite. We try not to unnecessarily provoke people by talking about death in a, in a hard way. So we, th- we say things like people who've passed away or they've expired or they've gone home. These are kind and polite ways of saying they died. And we understand that. No problem. That's a good thing to do. It's polite. In Paul's day, the going expression, the popular euphemism was to sleep. Because when you look at a body that's died, it it does resemble someone who's sleeping, I guess you could say, right? And from a Christian's point of view, it's actually a very healthy perspective because what we're saying is this isn't the end of the person. There's something more to come. They're just temporarily appearing to sleep. Now, some have gone too far theologically, and they think Paul means it in a literal sense, that is, if when you die, your spirit is sort of unconscious for a while, and you don't have any perception of anything until you're raised into a new body. That's soul sleeping, the term is. That's not biblical. There's nothing in the Bible to support that. It's a misunderstanding of the use of the word sleep here. That's all that is. The word sleep here is just euphemism. So what we could do if we wanted to read this in its literal sense, we just change the word sleep to die. And you have the full sense, the right sense of what Paul is saying. So Paul says, we will not all die. What? That's news. That's a mystery. No one ever said that before this point. In fact, the only thing we ever heard from God is, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then that just perpetrated all the way through from Adam on down, right? Now Paul's saying, oh, no, no, wait a minute. We will not all die physically. And notice he says we, and that we is very specific because he starts this section by saying, brethren, I tell you a mystery. The we here are the church saints, believers in the church. 
So you cannot walk around if you're an unbeliever, if you've not given your faith to Christ. You can't walk around saying this is true for you. This is not true for you. But if you're a believer, this might be true for you. Because Paul says we will not all die. So obviously for most Christians, they have died or will die. That's not only Paul's statement, that's not only the implication of his words, but it's the self-evident experience of everyday life, right? We see believers dying all the time, and of course, going back in history till the beginning of the church, they've all died. But Paul says it is in God's plan to allow some Christians to escape the death experience. Nevertheless, he says, we will all be changed. The Greek word for change there can also carry the meaning of exchange. We will all be exchanged, is another way to say it. So we must all give up this old body in order to obtain the new one. Sort of the seed example again, right? You can't get the tree without bearing the seed. It's the same idea. I don't get the new without the old being done away with. But Paul is revealing a mystery here that says there's two ways, not just one, but two ways God may choose to take away our old body. The conventional way and the way that we've seen up until this point has been death. Letting the body expire is one way to get rid of it. And it's the most common way. But for some Christians, the new body will come by way of an exchange with the old without the first body having to experience death first. We will not all die, but we will all be changed, Paul says. In verse 52, Paul says, this exchange, for whomever it happens, whenever it happens, this exchange will come in a moment, the Greek word for moment there is atomos. Atomos is a Greek word from which we get the word atom, because in the Greek that word means an indivisible amount of time. So small you can't even divide it further. And of course we use that word in science to describe an atom back in the day when we thought the atom was the smallest indivisible particle. Now we've realized it's not, but the name stuck, it's too late to change it. So you have atom of time, if you will. Fraction of time. And Paul even adds that little phrase, twinkling of an eye. That's that moment when a brief flash of light reflects out of somebody's eyeball. But it's, it's, you know, it's so fast you couldn't even measure it, it feels, right? That's the point. The moment when this happens, this opportunity that God will make available for some Christians to not experience death, but to go straight from where they are in their old body straight to their new body. That moment, Paul says, is for all intents and purposes, instantaneous. So you won't be watching it happen slowly. Oh, God forbid. Wouldn't that be terrible? <laughs> it's happening, I guess. Right? It'd be like sci-fi. No, it's, it's one second you're like this. The next second you're in the new body. Next, Paul says, this thing will happen at the last trumpet. That's the next detail. At the last trumpet. That reference to a last trumpet is a statement that any practicing Jew in Israel in that day, or even really today, any Jew who hears that, would immediately understand what Paul is referring to. They, he'd immediately or she would immediately recognize it. It's a reference to the Jewish feast of the Feast of Trumpets, or today you often hear of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is the new year for Jews in their calendar. It comes in the fall, and it's a feast of trumpets because it involves the playing or the blowing of 100 blasts of a trumpet. The first 99 of those... As part of the way the feast is conducted, the first 99 are short blasts of the trumpet. The last of the hundred is an extra long, extra loud blast. And Paul says the last trumpet here, which in Jewish parlance always refers to that 100th blast in the feast of trumpets. Every Jew knew that that's what it meant. 
And this moment when the exchange takes place is the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. The feast itself was given to Israel to picture this future moment of resurrection. And that that last trumpet of the feast is the mark of the moment for this resurrection. Some have concluded, by the way, that this trumpet, the mention here of a trumpet, might be a reference to the trumpet judgments of Revelation. And if you know the book of Revelation, you you know that there's these series of judgments that are metered out to the world. They start with seal judgments, breaking of a seal. Then it moves to trumpet judgments, we're told, and then finally to bowl judgments. And some have wondered, well, maybe this is the last trumpet of the trumpet judgments, not the last trumpet of the Feast of Trumpets. Now, if you were to hold that view, what that leads to is a thinking that says the resurrection of the church happens at the middle of tribulation because these trumpet judgments end the first half of tribulation. So if you've ever heard people arguing over, does the resurrection of the church happen before this period of tribulation or does it come in the middle of tribulation? Well, one of the ways people end up thinking it's in the middle is they see this chapter, they see these verses and they say, oh, the last trumpet must be the last of the trumpet judgments. And then people like me come along and argue, no, it's not that trumpet. It's the trumpet of the feast. And then we start arguing. But it's very easy to know that it's not the trumpet judgments of tribulation. When Paul wrote this letter and mentioned this last trumpet, he wrote this letter in the mid-50s A.D. The book of Revelation wasn't written for 40 years later. So when Paul wrote this, neither Paul nor his audience knew anything about the trumpets of Revelation. They hadn't even read the letter. God had not revealed it to anyone yet. He waited to John and revealed it in the last decade of the first century. But when Paul writes about the last trumpet, he uses the article the. He speaks as if his audience knows full well what he's talking about. It will come at the last trumpet. It makes no sense to think that he was saying this to an audience who had no clue about the trumpet judgments of Revelation. On the other hand, it makes perfect sense to a Jewish mind who understands the feast. So it's simply not possible that he would have been referring to mid-trib and to the trumpet judgments. Moving forward from there, Paul says, Christians who have already died by the time this moment comes, whenever it comes, will be the first to receive their new bodies. He says, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. The dead are those Christians who have already died. Their physical bodies have already died prior to this moment. So these are those folks who did experience death. He says they will be raised first. So where have they been until this moment? Well, as we sit here today, obviously this moment of the resurrection hasn't happened. We haven't had that moment in which we've been changed. The dead who have gone into the grave, the believers who've gone into the grave, their bodies are still in the grave, wherever they are, whatever condition they're in. And we haven't seen them resurrected. They're not walking around us now in new bodies. And Paul says that when this moment comes, those who have died will be the first to get their new bodies, which means right now in heaven with the Lord, they do not have bodies. They are in spirit form only. They're waiting for this moment, just as you and I are waiting for it. At the commencement of the resurrection, the Lord, it says, will reward the waiting of those who have been present with him in spirit. He will reward them by giving them their bodies first. They are raised. They are resurrected into imperishable bodies, just as Paul has described. Then he says, next, those who are alive. Now, here's where we get to the part where some of us perhaps may never die. If the moment of the resurrection occurred today and all of us are still sitting here alive today, 
There's no time to wait for us to die naturally. Today's the day of resurrection. And so he moves us directly from the body we have now into the new one in that instantaneous process he explained earlier. Paul gives more detail about this process in 1 Thessalonians when he writes to that church. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. There's that word for death again. About those who are dead, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remaining until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. There's that trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. That should be comforting, by the way, for all of us. Just because aunt so-and-so, uncle so-and-so, your mom, your dad, whomever, in the Lord, a believer in the Lord, just because that person dies today or died yesterday or the day before, has no bearing on their opportunity to be with the Lord or to be resurrected. They will receive a new body a moment before you do, and then we will be in the clouds in our new body with them to be with the Lord forever. The word that's commonly given to this moment is not the one the Bible gives. The Bible gives the word resurrection. If you want to use the proper term that's describing what we're talking about, it's the resurrection of the church. But we've taken to using a colloquialism, a word that you've heard, the rapture, taken out of something I just read in First Thessalonians, an English version of a Latin word for the original Greek. It's got a long, convoluted history. But it's, it's just a word. It's just a synonym. You can call it the rapture if you want, or you can call it the resurrection if you prefer. But whatever you call it, this is what we're talking about. A moment in which those who are dead receive the new body, those who are alive get changed instantly. Why does God do it this way? You ever stop to ask yourself, why does he need the moment of the rapture? In other words, why does he change some of us without letting us go through death first? There are two reasons, simply put. First, it's about numbers. It's about numbers. Paul says the church is a temporary fixture in God's purpose, intended to bring Israel to jealousy. What Israel could have had when the Messiah arrived, they lost for a time because of unbelief. And in the meantime, God has made available the grace of the new covenant to the Gentiles. You and I being proof of that Gentile grace. But Paul says in Romans eleven twenty five that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and the word fullness in Greek, playru, you can translate completeness, when the complete number of the Gentile church is reached, a number that only God knows, then he will have finished his work with the Gentiles for a time, and he will then return his attention back to the nation of Israel. When we have the last believing Gentile that God has appointed for the church, the resurrection will come. He doesn't need to wait for us all to die naturally. I mean, think about how that would have to play out. If I was the last believer intended to come into the church and I came into the church 20 years ago, we're still all just hanging around here. There'd be no new evangelism. There'd be no new believers added. We just have to watch the church dwindle out until the last one dies. That would be absurd. That would totally negate the purpose of us serving on earth for the last days of our lives, right? It would neutralize our ability to go out into the world and do the Great Commission. It would mean we've been put on pause and yet we're left. That makes no sense. It's about numbers. Once the numbers have been reached, the clock comes to an end for the Gentile church. The second answer, though, is the sense of urgency 
and unpredictability that this creates for us. It creates in us this uncertainty concerning when the date comes and therefore how much longer we have and therefore we have greater emphasis or greater encouragement to be thinking at all times about it and to be mindful of it in our everyday life. If God waited for all Christians to die naturally, then we'd have no reason to be waiting for the Lord's return on most days. We would just have to wait and see when we get down to one or two Christians left and then we'd be thinking, okay, it's got to be soon now. Right? It completely defeats the idea of what Christ says when he says in Matthew 24:42, Therefore, be on alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time the, night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would not allow his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In order to maintain that, that sense of urgency and unpredictability, God has intentionally constructed the resurrection day in such a way that it doesn't depend on us dying, it doesn't depend on some sign, it's just going to happen when he's ready for it to happen, when the number has been reached. Verses 54 through 57, Paul says, But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's plan of redemption promises that his death and his resurrection wins the victory over death. But now Paul concludes with this explanation of how that's actually accomplished. The victory over death that Christ won for us won't be evident to us personally until our own death has been conquered. Have you ever found yourself thinking that way? You know, you hear the song, victory in Jesus and victory over death, and then you think to yourself, yeah, but I'm going to die. I don't see how he won any victory there. I'm still going to die, right? And then someone says, oh, he means eternal death. Well, okay, but it really doesn't solve the problem. I still don't like the thought that I have to go through physical death. Well, the resurrection moment is the moment, Paul says, when death is swallowed up forever. I want you to imagine what you're going to think once you reach this moment. Once you're resurrected and you're living in your new imperishable body, death will forever be removed from your thinking. I don't even know if we can understand that this side of it, right? Because we're so consumed with that thought today. I want you to imagine a day when your mortality or the mortality of others you love is completely removed from your mind and your experience is such that it will never trouble you again. Can you really imagine that? I think that's really a struggle of this side of, of the new body, isn't it? Paul says the sting of death is sin. To get the proper sense of that, you have to understand what the word sting is in Greek. It's actually the word for the stinger that's on the end of the bee. So we really should be translating that the stinger, not the sting. So another way to say it is the instrument of death's attack is sin. The instrument of death's attack is sin. Our sin is the stinger that sets death into our flesh, that put death into us. And the power of that stinger is God's law. Because the power of the law is in its ability to condemn men who break it. So sin, putting death into our flesh, and the power of that stinger is in the law that says if you have sin, you must die. But the Lord granted us victory by first meeting the requirements of the law, so doing what we could not do, living sinlessly when we could not, and then he went the next step and he paid for our sin when he died on the cross. In that sense, Paul says, he won victory over death. 
because he put to an end the thing that had the power to condemn us for our sin. Thanks be to God for winning that victory. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for uh, for our collective patience to sit in this room this morning for a little extra time, as it turned out. But to just sit and listen to your word in this deep way, Father, to be attentive to the meaning of these things. But even more, Father, thank you for what it revealed. Thank you for the mystery of our resurrection and for the fact that you do not wait for the last of us to die, that you set forth a day of expectation that none of us can predict and so all of us can look forward to every day. Let it do its work in our hearts, Father. Give us the urgency and the commitment to be ready for that day, to consider it as possible at any moment so that we live in a way that pleases you every day. And, Lord, I thank you most of all for the victory you won over death, a victory we could never have won on our own. Father, thank you for giving us eyes for eternity that can look past the death of the body and and understand that we have a hope for an eternal inheritance with our Lord in heaven. Thank you, Father, for that. And for a church that preaches these things in a day when many would not, I praise you, Father, for that. Let us go out from here, Father, in repeating what we've heard so that we might be ambassadors for you in the world around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.